Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. All right, we are in Revelation. We're in chapter 1. It will feel like that we're going at a snail's pace. I assure you we're not. Um, We'll get through all of chapter 1 next week. And then we'll go through the seven churches, and then it'll speed up. But uh, we're laying the groundwork. Tonight's uh, message is titled Announcement and uh, Anticipation of the Kingdom, okay, the Kingdom of Christ. Uh, I'm presenting Revelation as the consummation of Christ's kingdom. Uh, That's the theme that I see in Revelation from beginning, middle, to end. You will see it as we go along. Revelation is about the consummation of Christ's kingdom. Um, How many of you know who Charles Colson is? He served, I believe, during the Nixon administration, went to prison, got saved, ended up starting a prison ministry, yeah? And, um, you know, um, a dedicated believer in Christ now. In one of his books, he told a story about when he was in Moscow uh, in 1990 preaching at a Baptist church just blocks away from the Kremlin. There was a packed crowd of worshipers, and he began to share with them that all through, all through human history, he said, as far back as recorded time, uh, kings, princes, tribal chiefs, presidents, dictators, they sent their subjects in the battle to die for them. Only once in human history, he said, has a king not sent his subjects to die for him, but instead he died for his subjects. And this is the king who introduces the kingdom that cannot be shaken, and that is our King Jesus. Think about it. He came, he lived, and he died on that cross. He shed his blood for your sins and for mine, and that's why we have such a wonderful king. Look, if you will, in Revelation chapter 1. We did the first three verses, the prologue, last week. Now we're looking at the greeting and uh, a prayer and so on. But look in uh, Revelation 1. We'll begin in verse 4. We're going to go through verse 8. Here's what the Bible says. John is writing. John, uh, as the Lord has revealed this to him, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. As we look at this passage, you will see three things. The first thing we see is a greeting there in verses 4 and 5. The greeting is from John, the Apostle John. He simply writes John, but when you look at the... uh, Even when critics uh, look at who this could have been, he had to have been so well-known, so intimately acquainted with not only Christ and the church that, you know, you mention their first name and you go, that's John. And this is John, the, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who went with Peter to find the empty tomb, uh... Uh, the brother of of James, and uh, this is that John who wrote the uh, Gospel of John, wrote Revelation, and then three other letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, It's written to the seven churches in Asia, and you'll see the number seven pop up a lot of times throughout this book, Uh, but there are seven churches, and they're mentioned by name in Revelation 2 and 3, in case you're wondering. It's a Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, The location of those communities 
is in the Roman province of Asia, not to be confused with the continent Asia, okay? This is the province of Asia in the Roman Empire, very, I guess you would say where Turkey, modern-day Turkey is today. It was a portion, portion of Western Asia Minor. The greeting is very typical when you read New Testament letters to churches. It says grace and peace. Uh, and obviously, when you experience the grace of God, then you enjoy the peace of God. And then it's from the triune God, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Normally, we're accustomed to saying Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Not sure why the order is changed there, but look at it if you, if you will. It says, to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. That is referring to the Father. The seven spirits before his throne is referring to the Holy Spirit. And of course, Jesus Christ refers to the Son of God. wanted to look at each one of those just for a moment. In reference to the Father, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, that really reminds you, uh, when you think about it, when you get to the Bible, uh, I mean, when you go to the very beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God, okay, uh, he created everything. And then as we go through the narrative from Genesis 1-1, as we go through the entire Bible, we begin to learn more about who God is and what he's like and you know, what do we call him. And it really gets intriguing when you get to Exodus, where Moses is, has an encounter with God at the burning bush. And finally, even Moses says, you know, who do I, you know, you're sending me to Pharaoh to tell him to let your people go. Who, who am I supposed to tell them that told me this? And he says, tell them my name is I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And John was very aware that that was one of the most um, prominent names of God in the Old Testament. Why do I say that? Because when you read the Gospel of John, uh, in the Gospel of John, again, seven, uh, in the Gospel of John, there are seven signs that Jesus does uh, to show people who he really is. And he makes these claims. I am. I am the bread that came from heaven. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. I am the vine and you are the branches. He uses the I am language. And when I studied a long time ago, a little bit of Greek, uh, in the Greek, it's literally I, I am, okay? So it's emphatic. It, it's like throwing it out there almost in bold letters, getting your attention. I, I am. And so when Jesus came on the scene and John writes his gospel and he points to all these signs that show you that Jesus really is the Son of God, he links that to the I am name of God in the Old Testament. Here comes Jesus and he says, I, I am this and I am that. And that's why they considered him blasphemous because the religious people of the day that refused to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, they thought, well, he's blaspheming because he's claiming to be God. But the thing is, it's true. He even said, I and the Father, I am the Father are what? One. He told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father, okay? And so this name that God revealed to Moses and to Israel, I am who I am, that's what it makes you think of. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. It also reminds you of what God revealed to Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah, three different times he mentions uh, God, giving us a name that he ascribes to himself. Uh, you might want to write these verses down. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Um, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I am the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. In other words, God says, I am the first, and I am the last. Another way we'd say it is the beginning and the end. Or there in verse 8, the Alpha and the Omega. And if you're not sure what that's all about, Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet and Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. It'd be like us saying A and Z and everything in between, okay? 
And so in Isaiah 44, verse 6, this is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of armies says, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. And then in Isaiah 48, verse 12, Listen to me, Jacob and Israel, the one called by me. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. And so when you look at how God has revealed his name in the Old Testament, I am who I am, the first and the last. It's not very hard to look at how this name of God is connected when he says, uh, I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Okay? So that's the name for the Father. He is sovereign and Lord over history. He was there at the beginning, He'll be there at the end, and He's over everything in between. Then we have the Spirit. Uh, Not only is is this uh, revelation and this greeting from God the Father, but also from the Holy Spirit. It says, from the seven spirits before His throne. And of course, it's fun to read the commentaries and Everybody's got an opinion of why there's another seven here, okay? Um, I could give you all of them, but it really wouldn't make a a bit of difference, I I suppose. But the seven spirits before his throne, that comes up again later. But the best thing that helped me is a quote I found from a commentator who said, John is alluding here to Zechariah 4. Um, I'm not going to go there to read that, but you can write it down, Zechariah 4, 2 through 9. It's where seven lamps represent one spirit which brings grace for the building of the temple and the Holy Spirit empowers us to become the temple in which God dwells. Another reference to an Old Testament imagery. Um, Seven also is a symbol for completeness, fullness. Um, Another person said, you know, you've got seven spirits, you've got seven churches, but listen, the seven spirits refer to the Spirit of God there before the throne. Uh, Look, if you will, in uh, Revelation 3.1. In Revelation 3.1, it says, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Um, You'll see next week, In the rest of chapter 1, there is a vision of Christ. It's very detailed, very descriptive. And then when the individual letters go out to each of the seven churches, he connects it to some aspect of the vision of Christ that's described in chapter 1. And so here in Revelation 3.1, it's saying, hey, the one who has the seven spirits of God. So you see that terminology coming up again in Revelation Uh, Again, it appears in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. In Revelation 4, verse 5, there's a scene in heaven, and it's talking about God as creator. And it says, flashes, uh, Revelation 4, 5, flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So, This comes up more than one time, is what I'm trying to tell you. And there's another occurrence in Revelation, chapter 5, where where now they're still in heaven, and the context is how we worship God as Redeemer. Not only Creator, He made made us all, but Redeemer. He sent His Son to shed His blood. And in Revelation 5, verse 6, John writes, Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne, and the four living creatures and among the elders, and he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. So I read all those uh, verses there to let you know that this uh, phrase, seven spirits of God, comes up a few times in Revelation. But um, here we're looking at the triune God, Father, Spirit, and Son, and yet they're one, okay? Uh, then you have, we've got the Father, the one who is, who was, who is to come. We've got the Spirit, the seven spirits before His throne. And now we've got the Son from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Man, there is a lot there. I just said a mouthful. Here we see the threefold uh, office of prophet, priest, and king. 
as a prophet, Jesus came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And so he is a faithful witness, just like a prophet comes to proclaim God's word to the people. Uh, not only is Jesus a prophet, he is a priest. He offered himself as the sacrificial lamb of God to take away our sins. And uh, so he is the perfect high priest. The, and that firstborn from the dead sort of acknowledges the completion of his priestly work. He, he gave the ultimate sacrifice and he rose from the dead. And then, of course, he's also king. He's now exalted as king, and he will return one day as king of kings and lord of lords. So when you read these three descriptions of Jesus, faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, it, it alludes to the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Um, there is one place where you see them used together, these three um, roles, if you will, and that's in Psalm 89. You can write these down. I know I'm giving, giving you a lot here, but uh, that's what's involved when you study Revelation. In Psalm 89, and by the way, Psalm 89 is one of many what they call messianic psalms in, in, you know, in the Old Testament. There, there are a collection of uh, psalms in the book of Psalms. There's 150 chapters, and there are a few psalms that are about the coming Messiah. They point toward a, a future Messiah, and they describe you know, that. Well, Psalm 89 is one of those. And, and look at what you find in Psalm 89, verse 27. It says, I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the kings of the earth. And then skim down to verse 34. He says, I will not violate my covenant or change what my lips have said. Once and for all, I have sworn an oath by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring will continue forever. His throne, like the sun before me, like the moon, established forever a faithful witness in the sky. And so between verse 27 and 37, firstborn, king, faithful witness. There it is, and there it is as well. And Revelation 1, verse 5, Jesus, faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. Pretty neat when you think about it. Now, when you think about that firstborn, if you're like me, the first time, the first time I read in the New Testament that Jesus was firstborn, I wasn't quite sure what that meant. Uh, I knew what firstborn meant as a concept in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you had a large family, the firstborn son had special rights and privileges. He got a double portion of the inheritance compared to the rest of the sons or, or recipients. But when it came to the New Testament, and the Bible says that Jesus is firstborn, that, you know, without that background, without that Old Testament understanding, someone just coming to the Bible for the first time goes, what does that mean? Well, you have to go to Colossians chapter 1, and there's about four verses there we need to read, and then I'll explain it to you. But in Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul is writing, he refers to Jesus when he says, He, so Jesus, He, is the image of the invisible God. Remember what Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, so Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all. All creation, more about that in a minute, for everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might, uh, so that he might come to have first place in everything. So it's a privileged position that He holds. He is not only firstborn over creation, He is also firstborn uh, from the dead. What does that mean? He is preeminent in all things. Now, lest you think that He was created 
it, it negates that idea when it says that uh, all things have been created through Him and for Him. You remember what John said in his gospel? Uh, John, when he wrote his gospel, John 1, verse 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And who is the Word? Thirteen verses later, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. Okay? So Jesus is basically God. He was there at creation. All things, that means everything, was created by Him and for him, and by him all things hold together. Uh, the, best, the best way I can say that, that children's song, he's got the whole world in his hands, okay? And not only is he firstborn over all creation, he's, he's preeminent over everything because he's over it all, but he's also firstborn from the dead. Now, there were miracles in the Old Testament where a few people came back from, from, the, from, from the dead, but they still died again. Jesus is firstborn from the dead because when he died, he died. But when he rose, he lives forevermore and he'll never die again. And so he is ruler and Lord over all creation and even death. Uh, that is awesome when you think about the roles there. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, Herschel Hobbes, I'm uh, going to use him a little bit. He's got a good... Uh, quote here that I want to share, he refers to a, another commentator named James Moffat, and he says this, James Moffat suggests that witness, which comes from the Greek word martis, should read martyr, or one who witnesses to the truth in his death. And if we follow this suggestion, then we have Jesus' death, which is his faithful witness, his resurrection, which is firstborn from the dead, and his ascension or exaltation, which refers to him being ruler of the kings of the earth. This would have great meaning to the Christians of Asia. Their Lord gave his faithful witness to God in his death. God raised him from the dead as the first fruits of their own resurrection. And he's enthroned as the ruler over the very kings or emperors who were persecuting them because they wouldn't worship the emperor. Pretty good, huh? thought that was good too. So the first thing that we see here in verses 4 and 5 is a simple greeting. But oh how rich it was. And now we see a doxology. There in the rest of verse 5, it says, To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and, and ever. Amen. Alright, so that's the doxology. To him, to who? To Christ. Okay, to Christ who does what? He loves us. He's set us free from our sins by shedding his blood at the cross. And he's made us a kingdom and priest to God his Father. And so to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Um, What's peculiar about that? We know he loves us. We even sing about that, right? Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. We know that he set us free by shedding his blood on the cross to pay for our sins. I mean, we emphasize that, right? But then, as a result of him loving us and doing something about it, dying on the cross and rising from, the, from death, it says he's made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. Now, I'm, I could be wrong, but if you go around, go around to different churches and you, you ask people, hey, what do you think God thinks of you now that you're a believer in Christ? You probably wouldn't have many that would say, oh, I'm a king and I'm a priest. Now, don't get me wrong. If they said that, they'd be right because the Bible says it. I'm not making this up. That's what the Bible says. But what I'm trying to say is we don't really think about that. But here in the very beginning of the letter, it says that, that God has made us a kingdom, and he's the king, and priest to his God and Father. Now, what is significant about that? Well, 
you got to go all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember what I said last week. As we go through Revelation, you're going to find out that as you're going through it, it's painted with so many vivid colors and patterns that unless you know the, under, uh, the Old Testament, understand it and familiar with it, you're just going to walk right by and somebody's going to say, did you say that? And you're going to say, see what? You know, there's a lot to see and I don't want you to miss it. So Exodus 19, in Exodus 19, and I believe it was chapter 20 is when Moses recorded the giving of the Ten Commandments. So it's almost there at that point. But in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, notice what the Lord says to his people. He says, now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the people, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So that was language that God applied to Israel. Here is John writing to seven churches in Asia. First of all, he's writing to the church. And second of all, these churches are in Asia, which is not in Israel. Okay, so these are Gentile congregations. And he throws down something that God would apply to Israel, and he's applying it to the church. Now, we've got to deal with that, because that is a fork in the road when it comes to understanding Bible prophecy. Now, what I want to show you is what the Scripture says, and we'll use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And if you don't like that, you've got to refute Scripture, because I'm just giving you what the Word says. First uh, Peter chapter 2. Remember Peter, the fisherman that got saved by Jesus, one of the twelve. Matter of fact, the leader of the pack, right? I mean, Peter was the, the de facto leader of the twelve disciples. And then after Jesus ascended to heaven... Peter was the one that God used to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember that? And Peter, eventually, when Paul burst onto the scene, they got together and Peter said, Look, I'm called to be the apostle to the Jews, and you're called to be the apostle to the what? Gentiles. Remember that? Okay, all, all that. And yet, here is Peter in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and look in verse 4. He's writing to believers... And I want you to see what he says to them in the language he uses. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, which the him is Jesus, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word, they were destined for this. But you, those of you who believe, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the One who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you go back and look at those phrases in 1 Peter 2, 9, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for His possession, that's stuff that God said to Israel. And now Peter is applying it to believers. You may say, ah, oh, that's kind of cute, that's kind of nice, Corey, but what does that mean? Well, let me give you the most compelling evidence of all. Remember Peter, he was the apostle to the Jews, and that's what he said. And then there was Paul that was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? Look at what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read half of Ephesians 2 and the first part of Ephesians 3. It's got to be read in its entirety for you to understand what he's saying. So listen carefully. Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 11. 
Listen to what Paul plainly says in Scripture. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. So already he's pointed out two kinds of people, the Gentiles who are uncircumcised, and the Jews who had the sign of the covenant going all the way back to Abraham, the, the men were circumcised. So we got two groups of people here, right? The Jews and the Gentiles, all right? At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He, that is Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups, that's Jew and Gentile, one. And He tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, we always talk about when Jesus died on the cross. Um, I think it's Matthew's gospel account, but I could be mistaken on that. But one of the gospel accounts uh, tells us that when Jesus died on that cross, said it was finished and gave up his last breath, that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, right? And that represented that, that most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Nobody could go back there except the high priest and that once a year and that only on the Day of Atonement and that with blood from a sacrifice. And now that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has died, the sacrifice has been made, and now there's a new and living way made open to the Father. Hebrews talks about that. We emphasize the vertical aspect of Jesus' death on the cross. The, the veil is torn in two from top to bottom. That means God did it. But Paul emphasizes the horizontal aspect of the work of Jesus at the cross. Not only did he tear down that, that, that curtain that allows you and I to have access to God through him, but now he's tore down the dividing wall of hostility. If you're familiar with the layout of the temple in the Old Testament, the Gentiles could only come to the outer gate, if you will. They had an outer court, and there was a place there you dare not cross it. And so the Gentiles were far. They couldn't get near. And then the Jewish men, because they were God's people, God's chosen people, you know, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, all that stuff, the patriarchs, the prophets, everything's on their side. They're religious insiders. They could go into the court. Okay? They could go into the court. And now Paul is using that imagery and that language there in Ephesians 2, verse uh, 15. He made of, uh, or, or verse 14, for he is our peace who made both groups one. And he tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so, so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and He proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away. That's the Gentiles. And peace to those of you who were near. That's the Jews. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. In Him, that's Christ, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Then jump to Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason, now listen to what Paul says. It's very clear, very compelling, very powerful. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that He gave to me for you? The mystery was made known to me by revelation, 
as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you're able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it's now revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And here's the mystery. Verse 6. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, critics of this particular teaching will say, oh, you believe in replacement theology. You believe that the church replaces Israel. Absolutely not. That's not what it says. That's not what it teaches. On the contrary, I believe that we are included in Israel. If you read Romans, I believe it's chapter 9, maybe it's chapter 10, but I think it's chapter 9, where Paul talks about one olive tree. Not two, but one olive tree. And the olive tree is Israel. They're the natural tree. But you and I, as believers in Christ who are Gentiles, we've been grafted in. Okay? And so we, the, the mystery is we're included. And, and God knew this from the beginning. That was His plan. Remember when He told Abraham, I will make you a father of many nations, and through you the, the, all nations will be blessed? Through Abraham comes not only Israel, but ultimately Jesus. Okay? And through Jesus, repentance is preached to all nations so that they might come and believe and be saved. Isn't that good? And so that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, they didn't understand that in the Old Testament. They, they just didn't see it. But God has revealed this mystery to the apostles, to the prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles are heirs together because of faith. Okay, Because of faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's the Bible. That's not me. That's just me reading the Bible, interpreting Scripture with Scripture. It's very plain. It's very clear. So praise God for what the Lord has done. That He is calling us. Uh, he, he loves us. That He died on the cross to set us free from our sins by shedding His blood. And as a result, He's made us a kingdom. And make no mistake, He's the King and priest. And that's what we are. That's what he says we are. So, so far in this passage, we've seen a greeting there in verse 4 and 5. We've seen a doxology, and when you understand it, you go, wow, God, that's something to praise God about. I mean, it really is. And then the last thing here that you see in this passage tonight is an announcement which creates an anticipation of Christ's kingdom, which again, I think the theme of the entire book of Revelation is the consummation of Christ's kingdom. I'm not going to say much about it because by the time we get through Revelation, you'll be sick of me saying it, but that's the theme. So what does it say in verse 7? It says, Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, and so it is to be. Amen. Oh, wow. So our king, according to this verse 7 and 8, will come with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those that yelled crucify and rejected him and pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth, everybody will mourn over him. And those who believe in him, we anticipate his return. The language here, coming with the clouds, again goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel had a vision in Daniel 7 verse 13. Daniel writes, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man. And what did Jesus refer to himself a lot in the Gospels? The son of man, right? He, he says, suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him, and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Did you catch that? A kingdom. 
so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And Daniel says that's going to happen someday, and John says here he is. Boy, isn't that good? You read Daniel, you'll find out that after all those prophecies were in in, uh, Daniel, God told him to seal up the book. It's not time yet. Here in about two, three more chapters, you're going to find out that there's a scene in heaven and there's a scroll, but nobody can open the scroll. And then there is one that can open the scroll. And then everything becomes an open book. His name is Jesus. And John is saying, hey, you know all the things that God has said and done in the past? Well, get ready. Here comes the finale. All right. There in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah in the back of the Old Testament, we have the second quote uh, that is included here in verse uh, Revelation 1-7 where it says that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and they will be mourning. Look, if you will, in Zechariah 12-10, Uh, The prophet says, And then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Don't you love how it's all connected? There's firstborn again. But here, Jesus, he's quoting Jesus. He's quoting Scripture. And now he's enlarging that to include not just Israel, but all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. That's what it says in Revelation 1-7. Now you might say, how does John have the authority to take some verses in the Old Testament that were applied to Israel, and he's convoluting this stuff and writing it right here? Well, first of all, it's a revelation from Jesus to John to the church, and he got it from Jesus. Let me prove it to you. Matthew 24. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, Jesus is talking about the end of the age, and look what Jesus does. Jesus takes what Daniel said and what Zechariah says, and he puts it together. And here it is in Matthew 24, verse 30. Jesus is talking, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the people of the earth, not just the twelve tribes of Israel, all the people of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I think Jesus knows what He's talking about, don't you? He tied those prophecies together in Matthew 24 and now they're being repeated again in Revelation 1. Isn't that cool? Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. One commentator says this. He says, Those who pierced him will at last recognize him and bewail the lost opportunity of salvation. But his own people will be expecting him, knowing that he is the Alpha and the Omega, both the beginning and end of all things. Man, that's good. Then, Revelation 11. Let's see here. Revelation 11. Let me give you a couple more things. I'm just kind of getting excited here. I'm just getting warmed up. All right, I hope you're hanging with me. Revelation 11, verse 15. You know, it says he's coming, and he is. And if we look at Revelation chronologically, then you're going to think the coming is at the very end. But we'll deal with how Revelation is written as we go along because in Revelation 11 and 16, you see, you see signs that he's already come. Let me, let me explain that. Revelation 11, verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. There it is. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was. 
Well, where's the other part? And who is to come? It doesn't say it. You know why? He's there. He's there. He's already showed up. <clears throat> who is and who was because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. So there in Revelation 11, we have a glimpse of that moment, whenever it is, when he comes. And the kingdom of Christ is fully ushered in, realized, and consummated. Who is, who was, there's no need to talk about coming because he's here. Okay? And then, look if you will, in Revelation 16, verse 4, the third the third poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, You are just the Holy One who is and who was. What happened to that third part? He's already showed up at this point, okay? Because you've passed judgment on these things. as It's saying it as if it's already happened, okay? You've passed judgment on these things because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. I heard the altar say, Yes, Lord, uh, God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So that is a picture of when He comes back, He's going to judge the world because He's the one who is and who was. And He's already come. Pretty powerful if you think about it. The title, here's a quote from Herschel Hobbes. The title, The Almighty. Notice it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. In Revelation 1.8, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Herschel Hobbes says, the title, The Almighty, would mean much to these persecuted Christians. They were suffering under the power of a mighty empire, but they served an almighty God. Knowing this, they could endure until God in His own time and way would wreak vengeance upon the adversary. Another commentator says, It may look to the beleaguered churches of Asia Minor as if their fate lies in the hands of a beast that has been given authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation, according to Revelation 13. In fact, however, in contrast to their ever-living Lord, the beast was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss only for the purpose of going to destruction. In other words, a has-been, lacking reality in the present and to appear in the future only for the sake of disappearing forever, according to Revelation 17.8. So Ephraim, an enemy, cannot harm those who stand under the protection of him who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Man, I don't know about you, that gets me excited. Well, let's kind of wrap this up. We've kind of squeezed the towel here and the sponge, and we've wrung out as much uh, stuff as we can. So let's, let's give you a handle on this before we go. Why is the anticipation of the coming of Christ's kingdom so important for believers? Because, I mean, you, you think about this. Uh, um, you, you, you see this already as you read Revelation about something that's going to happen, that's going to take place. And he writes to the churches, grace and peace, you know, and, and the greeting from the Father and the Spirit and the Son and how Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he's made us uh, a kingdom and we are priests to God as Father. And he's coming one day and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's almighty God. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's first and he's last. So what, why is the anticipation of the coming of Christ's kingdom so important? Well, I'll give you three quick reasons. They're very simple. They're very practical. This is the why. This is the so what. Number one, he's ruling over history from beginning to end. I hope you caught that as I got excited and read all these verses. God is God. I'm not. You're not. He is Lord of all creation. He's firstborn over creation. He's firstborn from the dead. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the God who is. He's the God who was. He's the God who is to come. He is the Almighty and He is Lord of all he is over history from beginning to end and guess what everything in between 
all this stuff that we're experiencing in 2020, he saw coming a long time ago. It didn't surprise him at all. Number two, not only is he ruling over history, but he will return just as he promised. This is going to be a very public event, folks. He is going to come in the clouds, and every eye will see him, okay? Uh, He will return just like he said he would. And number three, he will rule and reign forever. It says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And when I read from Daniel a while ago about the Son of Man coming in the last days in the clouds, his kingdom will never end and it will never be destroyed. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? So we've got so much to look forward to. My question tonight is this. Are you ready for the Lord's return? Are you longing for his appearing? And if you're not, I'm not saying that, okay? I'm not saying that to guilt you or to goad you. But I'm saying if we were to measure your temperature tonight, we would probably do it because of of a concern of this virus going around, right? But if we were to measure your spiritual temperature tonight, it would indicate how fervent you are in your, your, your intensity and passion for God. And the best way to check your spiritual temperature tonight is to say, do you long for the coming of Christ? And if not, ask the Lord to give you a desire for His return. Maybe you should start with the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught us to pray, He said, Our Father in heaven, uh, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And just keep repeating that part of the prayer until you realize what you're asking him to do. And let that become not only a priority in prayer, but a passion in your life. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you bear witness to your word. Lord, that we might see you for who you really are, that you love us that you laid down your life for the sins of the world, that we might be saved and forgiven and free from sin, death, hell, and the grave, and that you've made us a kingdom and priest. And Father, we praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.